Hi there. It is not often that I do an intro, but I wanted to do an intro for this particular episode because I just want to mention two things. First of all, thank you so much, King, for being on and answering my questions. I don't think that I come across as bold as I hoped I would be, and I think that that just shows you um, where the conversation is right now. I am a person of color, and even I have trouble asking the tough questions, and I desperately want to know the answers, but I think it's a really difficult subject, and yeah, and I, I, I recognized as I listened back to the recording that I come across nervous and giggly and just really unsure, and King handled that so beautifully and so well. And so again, thank you to him. The other thing I wanted to mention was if you have kids in the car or, you know, you might just want to know that at the very beginning, I don't have the exact timestamp, but at the beginning we do talk about rent and that particular show has some strong themes and strong subject matter. And it is something that we discuss. It's something that is a part of both of our teenagehoods, if you want to call it that, probably more so my teenagehood and his middle schoolhood. I'm not really sure. I think he's quite a bit younger than me, but it is a show that although it does have a strong subject matter, it's, it's important and it's important to talk about. So I just wanted to mention those things and I hope you guys again, enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Thanks. I'm like, oh I'm my gosh. I'm so long-winded. It's fine. I I, I want- worry about that. I worry about, oh my God, I'm going to do an Oprah interview and she's going to be like, can I go home? Like, <laughs> he talks too much. <laughs> Welcome to Jesus and Juliet. I am here with King. Well, what do I say for your last name? <laughs> well, <laughs> That's a whole conversation. First of all, hello. How are Hi. you doing? <laughs> I, was, I was like, oh, I need to, I even have it. Ask him. <laughs> um, but what's funny is one of the questions is, when did you become king and not Antonio? And so, yes, okay. tell me about that. I'm very excited about this. Okay, so here we go. It's like the juxtaposition between like the actual name and the stage name and like nickname is just a big mess. So my birth name, my government name, is Antonio Leroy King II. And all of the firstborn sons of my family have our dad's names. So no one ever called my dad Antonio. They always called him King. So growing up, my name was Little King. So all my life, I've been King. No one ever called me Antonio. But when I do like productions or, you know, when I sign contracts or whatever, it's my, you know, my government name. So my interactions with people is normally they start off by calling me Antonio, but then later down the line, they start calling me King. So you're more than welcome to call me King since we're family now. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's okay. how we'll do that. Cool. Yeah. It's funny because my, you mentioned my middle name, Doll. Mm-hmm. And Which is gorgeous. I remember I had someone at work. So it's on my, that's like, okay, I'm not on stage, but that's, mm-hmm. that is always, I always put Laura Doll Kennedy for anything theater related. And, right. um, and I remember even at work, I have my email, my work email says Laura Doll Kennedy. A teacher was like, oh, Doll is your middle name or your maiden name? And I was like, yes. Did you think that mm-hmm. I was like, Laura, baby Doll Kennedy, like at work? That's what, <laughs> but no, honestly, I thought 
Doll was your middle name. I thought it was like a great, you know, Southern, you know, I thought it was something like that. Because I have a million of those in my family. We have a Bessie Dale, a Sarah Bell, you know, my brother's name is Jalen Dion, you know, you have that great first name, middle name thing going on. No, that's my very German last name. Um, Mm -hmm. My middle name was Christine. And I was like, oh, that's beautiful too. (laughs) I'm like, "Eh, I can get rid of that one. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I wanted to ask you, you just being friends on social media, on Instagram for the short amount of time that we've followed each other, you Mm -hmm. are so confident. (laughs) (laughs) like you're just like this is me dude like I am who I am have you always been that confident or did you second guess things I feel like on social media I second guess almost everything I do and I wish that I didn't but I just do but do you ever like yeah where does that come from that confidence that's a loaded question (laughs) I feel (laughs) no it's great it's a great question so when I was younger I've always been a performer and I was always confident in my talent. Like I was always confident in my gift. I've always known I could sing, I could dance, I could act. I, I never thought I was like unfortunate looking or anything like that. But <laughs> I just, I mean, not to sound too deep or anything, but I just didn't think that was why I was placed on this earth. I was like, oh, there's pretty people, there's good looking people, there's attractive people. I'm here because I can sing and that's, you know, my worth, which, I mean, there's downsides to thinking that as well. But when I got older, and specifically when I got in college, I realized it's that great thing in college universities where we're all in our 20s and we're playing characters that are like in their 40s and 50s. (laughs) And I was doing all these grown-up shows and I was like, oh man, they're eventually going to ask me to take my shirt off. Like, I just know it. And I (laughs) I got so scared about it. And so I started working out and stuff and come to find out I love fitness. I love working out and I don't know, just confidence. I definitely grew into my confidence. My philosophy with being confident on social media is I would never post anything that I would be afraid to see in a few years, or I never post anything that I'd be afraid for like my parents to see or my grandparents to see. But I personally believe transparency is beautiful. So if you dig into my social media, you'll not only see like shirtless selfies and things like that, you'll also see, you know, scriptures I post. I'm a huge fan of Bishop T.D. Jakes and I always post clips of him or, you know, I even have posts on my Instagram where I talk about, you know, feeling um, too skinny or not strong enough or not man enough. And that's a struggle I've definitely had all my life, especially being a boy in theater and wanting to be seen as this leading man or this strong leading man, but not always feeling adequate. So I've definitely grown into it. So I get where you're coming from. Right. Wow. I never really thought about what it's like to be a a man in theater because it's, you know, I direct high school students. And so I'm constantly trying to, to make them into 40 year old men, you know, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, um, and they're, they're young. And yeah, it's just, that's a whole, that is something I just never really thought about before. So you mentioned Bishop T.D. Jakes and your faith. I listened to him too. Where did your faith begin? And that's something that I tend to ask all of my guests is like, how did, um, and it started at different times for all of my guests, but I just really love hearing about it and where you came from and how that mm-hmm. changed too. Um, so, so when did you find Jesus? I love that question. So I was born and raised in Indianapolis, Indiana, but my family's from the South. 
And so I definitely came from, I guess you could say the stereotypical Black Southern church tradition. So that being said, I have a lot of deacons in my family. I have a couple uncles who are pastors. My grandfather sang in the church. My grandmother was active in the church. And so I was just born into the religion, if that makes sense. But I truly, and I say this as truthfully as I can, I felt the spiritual connection with Jesus from a very young age. And I don't think it's normal, I guess I should say, but I couldn't deny it. I just, I loved Jesus from a very young age. I'm talking like five or six. And I loved service. Like I loved seeing people working in the church. I loved seeing people in the choir and I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to be a part of that praise and that worship. And so I was asking my mom, I was like, mama, I want to dance, you know, in the church. I want to praise dance. I want to sing. How do I get to do that? You know, what do I have to do? And she would ask me, you know, well, how do you feel about Jesus? Do you feel that he died on the cross for your sins? And I was like, absolutely. Like, what do you mean? You know, and that's kind of where my spiritual journey started. I just have always been a believer. I've never regretted it since then. But I also think that it's beautiful that my family didn't pressure any of us. My younger brother did not get baptized until he was about 13 or 14. And that was okay as well. So I'm so grateful I come from a family who showed what it's like, or I guess they were great examples of what Christians should be, but I never felt pressured to be baptized. I never felt pressured to be of service in church. I just naturally wanted to. And I think that that definitely helped transition me more into the arts because especially the black church. It's just, it's a big show, <laughs> you know, it's a great big <laughs> show. And I just, I loved it. And I've never, I ain't never gone back. So you didn't have any pushback when you wanted to be an actor or? No, I, but if I'm being honest, I think it's because I started in the church. I think it's because I, I wasn't doing what we would consider secular theater or yeah. secular <laughs> music or anything until like middle school. And even in middle school, everything I was doing was very innocent. And then in high school, everything was pretty innocent. I remember my sophomore year of high school, we did Children of Eden. And also, this was like right when I was born in 92. And so when I was in middle school, this was like when Tyler Perry was huge and he was like blowing up. Mm -hmm. And so seeing like theater and music mixed with spirituality, I think that my parents and my grandparents were never afraid of like the secular side because we were always watching things that were spiritually sound I guess you could say you know right. it wasn't until I got into college <laughs> and I did rent I did rent my freshman year of college which I love rent and you know if you know yeah. rent yeah there's like the big orgy <laughs> scene and there's like you know all that stuff and my mom came to see it and she was like okay <laughs> all right oh my gosh. This, is where, this is where we're at but by that time, I was grown. So, you know. You know, I, we talked about this. I remember seeing this in New York. We took a trip. My, It was like the summer before my senior year, I think. And so I would have been 16, maybe just about to turn 17. This was in 99. And I, we went. <laughs> I don't think I knew what that scene was <laughs> when I saw mm -mm. it. <laughs> I think I was like, oh, wasn't it very red? I don't know. I just remember red and like maybe some Child. chocolates. <laughs> like, 
even reading the script, even reading the script, I didn't know what was going on. I was like, so we're all, so this is a dance number. Like, I just don't, yeah. and why are we touching? Like, what, is, right. what, like my naive mind, I'm like, what is, what are we doing? This montage. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Oh, and it was the most awkward rehearsal process. They were like, okay, so put your hand here. And then I was like, what are we doing? Like this, yeah. like I'm calling the police. Like what's yeah. going on? <laughs> It is super funny, the situations that you, like the blocking situations you have to get to when you're in theater. I did a show where Mm -hmm. it was awful. It was this awful scene where this mother, she murdered her daughter. And, but as you're directing that, you're like, your hand, your hand needs to be, you're not holding that knife right. You know? Right. Differently. You need to move differently. And you're just like, what am I saying? And it's like, shouldn't you know how to kill somebody? Like, aren't you an actor? It's like, well, no, I don't have experience in this. <laughs> don't know her, never met You're her before. You're doing it wrong. Let me show you how. <laughs> exactly. This is how. So when I did this, this is what I did. <laughs> yes. Oh, uh, and I feel, whenever we laugh about it, too, I feel so bad. And I'm like, it's so funny. Someone once said, how do your kids come out of these shows and and yes i'm sure there's some emotional stuff they go through but i also like Mm -hmm. we're also laughing a lot (laughs) so yes it's ridiculous yes it's not it's not ever as serious for us as it is for the audience because we've gone through the rehearsal process and we've gone through the hiccups Mm -hmm. and the falling and the laughing and the messing up the lines and Mm -hmm. not knowing the lines while we're trying to figure out the block yeah yeah, we're doing blocking with scripts in our hands like exactly and they're like okay put your hand here now caress her cheek here and kiss her here and i'm like well okay so the song starts here so do i kiss and then sing or sing then kiss what do we it's (laughs) It's mechanics. It's robotics. Yes. Oh my gosh. So when you got cast in that, did you tell your mom? <laughs> You're like, mom, yes. here's the show. This is what it's about. Or did she know what it was about? No, no, no. So I feel like I've been, I'm going to pat myself on the back. I've been a huge blessing to my parents <laughs> because even though we're heavily in the church or whatever, I was also like, I was also in the theater around a bunch of LGBTQ people mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. So I feel like I have slowly helped my parents progress, which hopefully mm-hmm. we all have. Right. And I don't remember going into detail about what Rent was about, but I did tell my mom pretty much like the overall premise of it. But I played Benny. So I played probably the safest character in the show. He's just the one that's not liked and he's not really involved. I don't even get to dance on the table in Live Evo Will, which was right. like very disappointing, actually. <laughs> Extremely disappointing. And I just remember telling her when she came to see the show, I was like, okay, mom, so it's going to be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> prepare, your, prepare yourself. But you know what? To this day, I'm so grateful I chose to invite my mom to that one and not Avenue Q because that one I don't think I could get through with a straight face because <laughs> yeah. I did that. I did Avenue Q my junior year and I just, I, I just didn't want to ruin Sesame Street for my mother. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to do it. I saw that with my husband and I was like, oh. <laughs> it's so good and it's so hilarious, but it goes there. And it's like, yeah. this ain't meant for everybody. It's right. not. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I listened to Rent and I don't think I've talked about Rent this much ever. My kids, if any of my students are listening, they're like, what? But well, if they mm-hmm. know what it is, but I listened to that right. soundtrack on tape in my car. <laughs> I had tapes. 
Um, mm-hmm. Listen to that. We had type all yes. the time. Yes, and I mean all through college, and then I and I had met my husband, and he remembers me constantly playing that and he was like what is that because he's not like a theater person he was like what is mm-hmm. going on and i still could sing the entire thing like december 24th yeah <laughs> like, like, rent really rent really is that show like rent mm-hmm. is like that was the hamilton for us that was the dear mm-hmm. evan hansen for us like that yes. was like the big you know monumental musical where it just blew our minds you know without rent there wouldn't be a wicked or hamilton or yes any of those in the heights it's a good show so you're in college and when was the first kind of when you know we had our initial talk and and that mentioned diversity and Mm -hmm. For anyone listening who can't see you, King is black. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Because <laughs> I just relaxed. Heavily, heavily melanated. That's right. <laughs> and most people know I'm half Hispanic, but mm-hmm. that's a whole other story. Anyway, so when was your first tinge of like, um, something's not right? Like something that you know, someone said, or were you first started to kind of get that hint, like, this is not okay. Things are not okay. And Mm -hmm. was that in high school? Did you feel that? Did you experience that? Or was that in college? Um, And hopefully, you know what I'm talking about, (laughs) because that was Mm -hmm. very vague, but just, you know. So it's been an interesting life. (laughs) So when I was in middle school and in high school, my schools, I'm from the capital of Indiana, and Indiana is definitely a red state, but I was blessed because I went to very inclusive and diverse middle school and high school. My high school was predominantly Black. I would say probably 80% Black, but all my theater professors were white. We did a lot of shows where race was not necessarily a topic. You know, we did the great high school shows like Guys and Dolls, and like I said, Children of Eaton. So color was never really a thing that was brought up in a sense of what do we do about this? It was just, oh, we have this these colorful groups of kids. We'll just put them in shows where color doesn't really matter. If anything, it'll just elevate it and make it greater. And that really blessed me because it put me in a position where I felt like I could do anything and play anybody. Mm-hmm. And when I went to college, it was a complete culture shock. I went from a high school that was probably 80% Black to a theater, not even just the theater department, a university that, and I'm not exaggerating, was maybe 95% white. And I was the only black theater major guy for two and a half years. So half of my sophomore year, my entire junior year, my entire senior year, the only black guy. And so it put me in this really, really stressful situation because I felt like I had to be the quote-unquote magical Negro for everything and for everybody. I had to be the scene partner for all of the Black girls. So I was constantly being shuffled around for that. And it was difficult because I felt like every time I was, because I was blessed, I was the lead in a lot of shows. I felt like I had to really prove myself. And I always had this pressure that I created most of it probably created for myself, but I felt like a lot of pressure was put on my shoulders to be perfect. 
and that I could not make any mistakes. Mm-hmm. And so I, I remember being cast in Company, the um, musical by Stephen Sondheim, which is a musical, I believe, set in the 60s in New York. I'm 22, playing a 30-year-old white man, basically, and just grappling with and trying to figure out how to make this work. He doesn't talk like me. Obviously, the situation he's in is not a situation a Black man would be in in the real world. And I specifically remember there was a line in the show where another character asked him, how many Black people do you know? And I freaked out about this line because I was, I was like, well, this isn't going to make any sense because obviously you can't mm-hmm. hide my color. And so I'm like, okay, how will they, I'm like, how is this going to make sense? This doesn't, we just have to cut it. I'm like, it's fine. It's just one line. It's not going to be a big thing. You know, we'll just cut this one line and everything will be cool. Right. And I remember my theater professor trying to make it a thing, trying to make it a um trying to make a statement by it Mm -hmm. and to the and to this day i still don't understand what the purpose was because every night when the other character would ask my character that question i could just see the audience looking at each other like what (laughs) that just makes no sense (laughs) like what right Right. and i'm like i told my theater professor i'm like this literally makes no sense like he's black so obviously he knows black people he has a black mother and a black father right and so i remember i had a great time in a lot of ways in college but to be completely honest college was the hardest four years of my life because i constantly felt like i was going to battle with all those things and that was a very long answer to a short question but i will say if I could pinpoint like one of the first things that I noticed was like a difference in the culture shock was when people started asking to touch my hair. Mm. Like that was a huge, that was a huge, that was a moment. I had never been asked that before because I've always had hair. I've always had long curly hair. I've always been surrounded by, and I always say this joke, even the white kids at my high school were black because they were around black people all the time. Mm -hmm. So they knew not to ask questions like that. They were not Mm -hmm. like, amazed like oh my gosh like how are you how does it grow like that how does it whatever whatever but I remember going to college and having people ask like oh my goodness can I touch your hair and that's when I knew like (laughs) I ain't in Kansas no more (laughs) at at first were you like yes (laughs) (laughs) that's such a weird question and such a it is yeah that's I couldn't weird. pinpoint, I could not pinpoint how it made me feel until later. The first couple of times people asked to touch my hair, I let them because one, I'm a people person, so I love mm-hmm. people. And two, I love my hair. So it was not, it did not feel disrespectful. But later down the line, I started to feel yucky after. And I had to really question myself of like, why do I feel so yucky? And I realized, oh, it's because you're not in a petting zoo. Mm-hmm. And the reality is they're not asking other people to touch their hair. They're not asking mm-hmm. Connor or Brenton, I'm trying to say stereotypical <laughs> white names. <laughs> they're not they're not asking to touch their hair. They're asking to touch your hair because it's exotic, it's unique, it's different. Mm-hmm. And you are saying yes so that there's no confrontation or so that you don't make them feel bad, but in the end you're feeling bad because they've made you feel even more different than you already feel. Mm -hmm. And so it was moments like that that really taught me a lot in college being the only one. Being the only one is very difficult. And I had already lived a life of being the only one, being, you know, a straight man in musical theater and constantly grappling with, am I man enough? Am I masculine enough? 
and all those things. So it was interesting. I had to really learn how to communicate. And so I'm grateful to this day for those experiences because I know how to help other people when they're going through those things. And I have countless stories about how I've had to sit other actors down and be like, this is what we don't do. And this is why. Mm -hmm. And hopefully you will pass this on to another actor who you hear is not treating a POC actor with the same respect they treat other ones. I have another story about that, but we'll get to that later if you want to. Yeah, well, I have two follow-up questions. First of all, I want to know what characters you played. And Mm -hmm. were you ever the lead? Not because I care whether you were the lead or not, but more because I care whether you were put into a leading role because you were Black or because they, you know, because the director Mm -hmm. is trying to do something different like right. if you ever felt that, I guess, is what I'm saying. Right. And then also, why were you always partnered with black girls when working on scenes? Oh, yeah. I love that question. Yes. Um, so how far back do you want me to go? Because I go all the way back. You mean like middle <laughs> no, school, I mean, high like school, college? College, college, college. Oh, college. college. Okay. Yeah. So my freshman year, we did Rent, and I played Benny, which was amazing because Tay Diggs originated the role, and that's like my favorite actor of all time. And we did another show called The Brothers Side, which is written by Terrell Alvin McCraney, who wrote the film Moonlight, which won the Oscar. And that was a great film because it was written by Black men for Black actors. And that was the last show I did with other Black men. After that, I was the only one. Mm -hmm. And so I was very grateful to get the opportunity to do that. And we had a guest director come in who's been on Broadway, and he's a great musical theater director. His name is Jerry McIntyre. And he is amazing. If anyone ever gets to work with him, he's great. And then sophomore year, I played Trekkie Monster in (laughs) Avenue Q, which was amazing. So much fun playing Trekkie. I did some puppeting for that. What else did we do? We did Medea by Euripides. I played Jason, which was a lead, the leading male. And we did Company, which was like my first, first big lead. I played Bobby. Bobby, Bobby, baby, Bobby, Bobby, baby. And then my senior year, we did Picnic, which is a play by William Inge, and I was the lead in that. I didn't feel that I was ever cast because I was Black. I always felt that it was my job to make things work because my directors never knew how to communicate to me without asking me to either be more Black or you're too Black, which is difficult. Mm-hmm. And Wait, so, and you? so I, in not so many words, but mm-hmm. I remember situations where it's very PC. They try very hard to be mm-hmm. PC. So I have a theater director and let me just be clear for whoever listens to this or anything. I have no malice in my heart. I've gone, I've gone to Jesus about it. You know, I've prayed about it. I've, I'm over, you know, the hurt and the stress of it. But it, there, when I think back on college, there were a lot of things that were said to me that were just plain wrong. And I remember a director telling me once I was playing a character and he said, so it's just not urban enough. Like, can you just make him more urban? Like, you know what I mean? Like, can Mm -hmm. you just make him more urban? And if someone said that to me now, I'd be like, what do you mean? And I would just let them go down that rabbit hole, you know, (laughs) and shut them, shut themselves up. You know what I mean? Yes. And I, and I remember this theater director saying, you know, like, urban you know like put dirt under his fingernails you know what I mean like make him more Mm -hmm. make him more and at the time sadly did not know how to communicate 
how that made me feel. Mm-hmm. But when you are a director and the only way you know how to direct an actor of color is to basically say, can you be more ghetto? Can you be more hood? Or mm-hmm. can you kind of be more white and, you know, more palatable? That's what we're hearing. And when you're hearing that over and over again, it can hurt. And so I don't remember feeling like I was ever cast because I was black. I always remembered feeling like, okay, it's my job to make it work. It's my job to figure out how black to be. It's my job to figure out, okay, so am I a black person playing a white character or am I turning him into a black character? It's just always a very, it's like, it's a whirlwind. Like it's very, we don't get to have the same process as other white actors who get to just step into these characters and just be who they are if that makes sense right and and i will say one last story when i did picnic by william inge which is set in the 50s it was very i guess i could say embarrassing because there was a line the role was not written for a black man at all and it's about a white family and their, you know, their problems and everything like that. And the character I played is a guy who comes in, he's kind of from the wrong side of the tracks and he falls in love with the young ingenue and it's like this forbidden love. So automatically, when you cast a black man in that role, even though none of the lines have anything to do with race, the play automatically becomes about race because he's already from the wrong side of the track. Mm-hmm. And it's a period piece. Mm-hmm. And he's a black guy with a white woman. Mm-hmm. And so it made me so uncomfortable doing the things that I knew were not allowed at that time. Mm-hmm. And it made me uncomfortable trying to like put a veil over the countless black men who were probably violated or in grave danger. Mm-hmm being involved with this forbidden love. And I remember in that play, there was a line where the mother says, and, and like I said, be mindful, this play has nothing to do with race. It's written right. for a white man. Yeah. The mother comes out and says, oh, did, he, did he go into the restroom and use my towels? And the daughter says, oh yeah, he took a shower and he used one of your towels. I'm sorry, mom. And she goes, oh, he left my towel black as dirt. And so, I can't, and I can't make this stuff up. And so- <laughs> oh my gosh. And so it's written for a white man yes. who's just dirty. But when you add on the layer of race, yes. because you can't hide the brown, mm-hmm. you can't hide the melanin, mm-hmm. it automatically becomes about that. And so those years were, it was just uncomfortable. It was just very difficult playing those roles and trying to just figure out how to make things work. It was tiring. It was stressful. I'm still tired. <laughs> Good night. Right. Um, Yeah, I would imagine that it's like if you're going to cast a black man in that role, that it's almost like then you need to own that that's what you've made the show and you need to make that apparent that like, you know what I mean? Like you can't like go the line because it does turn into a whole different thing. Like not only people, you know, that like interracial marriage being illegal and things like that, but also black men being falsely accused of things and going to jail for Mm -hmm. things that they didn't do. And, and all of that stuff. Right. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it becomes right or murdered. And yeah. (sighs) It's so true. And I, you know, because I know you'll understand being an educator, being a teacher, whenever I have talkbacks with students after a show and they ask questions, I always stress to them how important it is to write 
and write their own stories and write down, write poetry and write plays and write musicals because sadly for POC actors, there's going to be a moment, and this is not just Black actors, because we all know there's only one amazing Asian musical. It's one of my favorites, Miss Saigon, but there's not many other roles for them as well, or even Latinos Mm -hmm. and Latinx, excuse me. And I always stress to them how important it is to write your own story so that there will not become a time where you feel there's like a fork in the road of should I continue in theater or should I not? Because I don't see roles for me and I don't see enough representation for myself. And it just makes me, it makes me sad when I think about all the actors who I loved working with in like high school and we were so creative and we were so ready to take over the world. And they got to a place where they didn't feel like there was space for them anymore. I just think I was blessed because I've just always been so driven. I never allowed my color to like stop me from going after creative expression, but it was difficult. It mm-hmm. was hard. And so I always, I always stress to them, write your own stories because when you don't see something up on stage, that's literally God giving you the vision to put it out into the world. Like it's literally for you to put out there because somebody else is going to need to see that. And so I always stress that to my students. But um, I forgot the last question you asked me. The reason why I was always paired with the Black girls was because it got to a point where I specifically remember it was junior year. We got tired of doing white plays. (laughs) We just really got tired of doing white. We just really got tired of doing white plays and white musicals. And so we really invested in doing August Wilson plays and Susan Laurie Parks and Lynn Nottage. And we really dove into Black writers and black plays for our theater competitions and things and you know my black girlfriends who were in the theater department they needed black men to play their boyfriends to play their husbands to play their brothers and so that wasn't really hard because I enjoyed doing that but I definitely had to do a lot of jumping around you know helping my girls out because they were plays that you could not have a white man play those roles it just wouldn't make any sense I kind of did that as a service to them and it in turn blessed me. Right. And that was one of the things where I was like, is this something that someone else chose? But that's something that you chose to do on your own. Okay. So I am a teacher teaching at a majority white private school. And so how would I include diversity in that respect? Because right now when we have class, it's rehearsal. So Mm -hmm. we're not the, we only have class twice a week. Um, And then we have after school rehearsal. And so a lot of our class is rehearsal. It's not like typical high school theater where you have acting class and then you have school. So how can I include diversity and I don't have any students of color in the program? I mean, I don't. I love that question. I'm trying to think and I don't, in my current show, I don't have anybody. I love that question. And that's extremely valid and it's real because there are a ton of theater departments and schools where it is all white and it's historically all white and you can't just snap your fingers and put people of color in there. So I, I completely get it. To me, what is very important is I think that we as a collective have to continue to push the truth that Black people are human just like white people. Mm -hmm. And that's, I know that sounds very deep, 
but you would be surprised how many theater friends I have, theater friends, white theater friends who I met in college who have said to me, you are the first black person I've ever been in class with. You are the first black person I've ever asked. I, I know your name. There was a black guy in my elementary school and I didn't even know his name. I didn't even, we never spoke. You're the first black person who I've ever seen, you know, in my dance class. And I think that we have to constantly push the truth that black people are not just these things we see in music videos or on TV. And so when you have an all white theater department or a theater class or a theater collective, because you cannot add actual human bodies to create diversity, I think it's important to educate what black people have done in theater to those white students so that when they get into the real world and they decide to move to New York to be on Broadway and everything, they realize that, oh, black people helped create this art form as well. And they're humans like me. We may even have some of the same experiences because we're theater kids. We're all theater nerds. We all listen to the same thing. But I think it's so important to let white theater kids know that Black musical theater history, Black theater history is still theater history. And so just to make that, you know, cute and short, for your all-white theater kids, no, please don't do Dream Girl. Please don't do, please don't do Once on This Island. Please do not do A Raisin in the Sun. Do not do those. Mm -hmm. But when you're having conversations about musicals or when you're having a theater history one-on-one moment or when you are showing clips of a musical, show them those. Mm -hmm. Show them A Raisin in the Sun so that they can see representation of a Black family and see how they're the same and not how they're different. Show them clips of Dream Girls and show them glamorous, you know, Black women on stage, dark-skinned women on stage, Mm -hmm. so that when they meet those Black women in real life, they're not asking, can I touch your hair? Right. They're not not asking, oh, well, do you use the same makeup as me? Or how Mm -hmm. do you do that? Or you know what I mean? It's just really about having conversations and showing, because like I said, I get it. It's hard. You don't actually have a lot of Black kids. I think that it's important to make it abundantly clear that there are Black people in the world and that it would behoove you to learn how to be around them. Right. Because you can't miss miss us. And that goes for Latinx and that goes for Asians as well. Right. Okay, so I'm a teacher, a theater director at a school, Mm -hmm. and I have a few black kids Mm -hmm. is this my opportunity to do fences or do you know what I mean like does this become my Uh big opportunity I feel like no it doesn't Mm -hmm. because first of all then I can't really I'm not really auditioning am I because I'm just like you Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know so then I'm not then I'm just doing a show because I have that kid in my class right so is it more important to to try to do shows like that? Or is it more important to just go about doing what we're doing, but just speak about it? And so that so that the kids, they mm-hmm. are all auditioning and it's not like I'm doing this thing. I feel like I'm, I would be putting the student, like showing them off, which feels mm-hmm. like exploiting their color. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. It's like what you told me about the the guy. I mean, we didn't talk about this on this, but you know, the guy that really wanted you to perform. 
the theater um, department. Uh -huh. Where he was trying to really get you guys to perform and you were like, listen, it's, I don't want to exploit that either. So right. what is your well, advice? Well, in that situation that you're talking about, that was for a professional lort, a league of regional theaters, people who don't know, equity theater. Mm -hmm. And that white theater head wanted us to sing for a Black Lives Matter tribute to basically show where they stand and to educate their audience on where we are right now in America. Mm -hmm. And I had to explain to that theater head that if the only way you can be of service is by having the couple Black artists you know sing for your concert, then you have already taken a misstep because your version of allyship is requiring me. Mm -hmm. And I'm the one who's oppressed. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I had to explain to him, what would you do if we all said no? Whatever it is you would do if we all said no, that's actually probably the first thing you should do. Right. Because you, because you are not, first of all, you're being creative and you're not relying on Black people to be on the front lines for your concert when we are already metaphorically and literally on the front lines fighting for mm -hmm. our lives. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I had to explain that to him. I will say, just to be very frank, I think that's a different situation than like the student thing. And, you know, I have these couple of Black kids, do I do fences and everything? And I'll tell you why. I think one of the biggest blessings that I had was a theater director in high school who was very open with us and that she would talk to us and she would communicate with us. And I personally think, and let me just be clear, I'm one black person. So not all black theater people will think the same right. thing. Not every right. black person will. I don't speak for all of us. Mm -hmm. But to me, there were definitely moments when I was in college where I was so frustrated being the only black person. I was so frustrated doing these white plays. I was so frustrated being asked, can you be more this? Can you be less that? There were moments when I absolutely would have loved to do a black scene for class. There are moments where I would have loved to do a black monologue and have that moment. And I did get those moments in college. And those were some of the greatest moments and memories I had. And so to the theater teacher who has one black you know, guy, and you're wondering, well, do I want to put him on a pedestal? I don't want him to feel forced. I don't want him to feel awkward. Does he want to do it? I say ask. Genuinely ask, hey, this is something I'm thinking about doing. You're a young African-American man. We can't hide that. Is this something you'd be interested in? Do you like this play? How about you read it? Let me know what you think. Mm -hmm. You know, things like that. That's honestly what I think. I think that you have to give that power to the student right. and allow them to make that decision. But I will say, and you and I have talked about this also, I think that sometimes, because, you know, the hot words right now are diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. Diversity is not just Black people. Mm -hmm. And diversity is not just Latino people. Diversity is curly hair, straight hair, plus mm -hmm. size, skinny, mm -hmm. thin, tall, short. That's what inclusion mm -hmm. is. That's what diversity is. I'll say this, if you don't want your couple of Black students or a couple of Latino students or a couple of Asian students to feel pointed out or feel like they have a spotlight shining on them, mm -hmm. I think that you should invest inclusion in all ways. Mm -hmm. So like you and I have talked about, if you're doing Guys and Dolls, 
and you have a character like Adelaide who is normally, you know, I think Jane Krakowski played Adelaide on Broadway or something. She's normally very sexy and, you know, she's working at the hot box club and everything. Give that role to a plus size girl. Mm-hmm. Allow her to step into that role and, you know, do something other than Tracy Turnblad in Hairspray. Right. You right. get what I'm saying? Yes. And, and what that does is you create a, a system where if you do give a black kid a little bit of shine, you know, give him a little bit of opportunity, it won't be this thing where they feel like, oh my gosh, I'm so, I'm so nervous. She's pinpointed me. I'm the only black kid anyway. I just want to stay right. in my corner. Don't bother me. I'll just stay over here and do what I do. They'll already feel welcome right. to kind of break barriers in a way because yeah. everyone else is doing it. You right. get what I'm saying? Yes. I hope that makes sense. No, it does. Because I just, I just, I think back on like when I was in, college and stuff and I would have just loved to be asked what do you think about this are you willing to do this is this something you want to do do you even like this play does this resonate with you I just would have loved to be given the opportunity to say how I feel right and so I I think that that's a very important place that a lot of theater teachers to start because doing theater is already so artistic and you're already so vulnerable it's such an open artistic structure that theater teachers, you know, you're already, whether you know it or not, you're already counselors. You're already, yeah, you know, right. you're already a safe space for so right. many students. And so to just have a conversation one-on-one, not in front of other students, but to have a conversation with a young black girl and say like, hey, how do you feel about this? Do you want to do mm-hmm. this role? I'm thinking about doing this. Or even saying to them, you know, I'm thinking of doing this production. I want you to look at this role. I want you to audition for it. You know, I want you to go up for it. Don't be scared. You know, right. I think that that's important. Yeah. Now I don't, I don't know what you should do if the, if the child is not good. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't know what you so, should do. <laughs> yeah. Because that's valid as well. You know, right. I think you'd have to pray about that. You'd have to pray about it. <laughs> We're going to have to do some hard work. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you have been through some tough situations and even, you know, this year, I mean, your whole life, but also this year, mm-hmm. which is like a decade's worth of tough situations. Exactly. Um, how have you turned to God in those situations and what have you without digging in too much into your personal prayers. Um, I always mm-hmm. feel like prayer is such a private thing, but what have you been asking him for and how has he helped you kind of move through these situations? My God, I'm so happy you asked me that. This year has been rough, so I'll try to get through this as fast as I can. So in January, I went to New York for the very first time for audition season which if some of you don't know what that is, it's basically January through around March, where a lot of professional theaters, regional theaters, Broadway theaters, national tours, they have auditions in New York. And it was my first time because I was so nervous about going to New York after college, which is why I currently live in LA, because I just felt like LA fit more of like my Midwestern mind. And I was scared to move here as well, but not as scared as New York. I was like, the subway, the rats, I can't do it. I'm not doing it. (laughs) And so I went to New York and I did within two, three months, about 50 auditions, which is unheard of 
And I did not realize it was unheard of. And when I told people I was doing that, they were like, how are you not going crazy? I like, I did not realize that actual actors who are working in New York don't do that. Like that is so much rejection to put yourself through. And I went into a very, very dark place because I felt like it was just not happening for me. I was going into these rooms and it just was not working. I felt like I was killing it. I felt like I was doing a great job. I felt confident in my looks. I felt confident in my choices. It just wasn't working out. And then cut to, I got a call back for Hamilton for Thomas Jefferson, which is my dream role. And then cut to about a week and a half later, COVID broke out and I flew home because I did not want to be stuck in New York by myself. Mm -hmm. And I said all that to say this year from that all the way till now has been one of the hardest years of my life for obvious reasons. There's so much hurt going on, so much death, so much uncertainty. I'm also an essential worker, so I've been working. It's just really been a dark, dark time. I don't remember such a long stretch of months being so hard. I've had hard moments in my life, just like everybody else. But this has been just one thing after another. And what I've been telling my friends who I've been talking to, and I want to speak this over anyone else who's listening, I truly feel like this is code red time. And I feel like normally when we go through things, we brush some things under the rug, we pray about it, we go to church about it. And then within the day, within the week, within the month, we get over it. Mm -hmm. But because so much is happening on top of each other, I feel like any little thing that you are struggling with, I feel like you really have to go to God like it's code red. Mm -hmm. I feel like you really have to go to therapy like it is code red. This is not a time to sweep things under the rug. This is not a time for uncertainty because this year will take you out. Like this year will really take you out if you let it. It's been tough. And so just being completely transparent this year, I've had to really dig deep in my faith because I'm a church boy. I ain't even been allowed to go to church, y'all, because of the COVID, you know. And so my entire culture and the tactics I usually use to get through hard times, I have not been able to use. Mm -hmm. And so I've had to buckle down. I've actually been fasting. I've been reading through the Psalms, which has been very enlightening. Mm-hmm. I think I'm on day 39 right now. I've actually started meditating. I've started just taking a moment to calm myself and focus my mind. I know that sounds like very woo-woo to some people, but really meditating mm-hmm. literally, mm-hmm. you can bake a cake and be meditating. Like meditating right. is literally mm-hmm. focusing on one task and finding a calm and I've had moments of loneliness this year. I've had moments of, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests. I went to a few protests and just as exhilarating and as beautiful as it was, it was also hard and it was also sad. Mm -hmm. And I was carrying around a lot of weight. I was struggling. And when I say was, I mean, right now, Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I constantly struggle with, am I man enough? I constantly struggle with, are my flaws too much. I constantly struggle with, oh, is this the reason why I'm single? Is this the reason why I didn't book the job? Like, how crazy is it? Like, think about this. Like, because in a spiritual sense, you would think that I would think, oh, the rejection was God's protection. That's the reason why God didn't give me that show I auditioned for in January. Because had I booked it, 
mm-hmm. and then the virus broke out, I would have been devastated. Mm-hmm. I would have been devastated to have right. such a high and be so excited and then not be able to do it. Right. But I'm so human and I think that I have so much control that instead of thinking about it in that light, I go, oh, well, I was supposed to be perfect and I was supposed to just book things anyway. And I'm constantly telling myself that perfection is not the standard. It is an obstacle. Yeah. And I'm constantly telling myself that perfection is not real. And I'm constantly trying to tell myself that the reason why I am the way I am and the reason why I'm going through the things I'm going through is not because of past mistakes. It's not because of past choices. It's not because of past, oh, I wish I had said this or wish I hadn't done this. And one of my favorite Bible verses, what it says is, do not dwell in the past because God is doing a new thing in your life. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I've really been trying to speak over myself to get through the day. And I always use this term. I'm a huge affirmations person. So I literally, if you saw my mirror right now, you would see I have literally just affirmations up and down my mirror. One of my favorite affirmations is focus on the next indicated thing. And so I always tell myself, I don't have to know the big answers. I don't have to know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't have to know where I'm going to be, how I'm going to be, but I can get up on time. I can get up and read my Bible. Mm -hmm. I can get up and brush my teeth. I can get up and go work out. And I focus on those really small things just to keep me going. And even artistically as an artist, I've been working on, you know, I hate self-tapes. I've never been good at self-tapes. I got a lot going on. I got thick eyebrows, big eyes, big lips, a lot of teeth, (laughs) a lot of hair. I got got a lot going on. God gave you extra. (laughs) He gave me extra, girl. Extra. Extra large, the large. And I've never liked self-tapes. And I've been working on that. I've been working on getting in front of a camera and getting more comfortable with that. And I've really just been trying to find the simple joy. And that's actually been one of my prayers. Lord, please help me enjoy the small joys and help me enjoy the little things. Because we all know that the first place the enemy tries to take over is your mind. Mm-hmm. And so I try so hard to pray over my mind because I don't want any depression or sadness to take over anything good that's actually happening to me. And I try to give myself pats on the back for taking positive, proper action and not wallowing in my sadness because of my mind. Right. Do you think it's harder for actors because they, what they feel, I mean, and what it is, what the job is, is partly based on your looks. It's partly mm-hmm. based on, on your insides and your outsides, whether or not you're a good yeah. actor or actress and, and whether you look like what they are looking for. And yeah. so I, you know, as a teacher, no one cares what I look like. They care mm-hmm. what's in my brain. And that's, you know, I don't know. (laughs) That's sketchy too. I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) You know, who cares what I look like? And so I wonder if it's just, it just made me think that like, it's just so much easier for the devil to attack. And that's why it feels like the entertainment industry is being attacked more than anything right now is because it's so easy. (laughs) 
You know yeah. what I mean? Um, Agreed. so easy because it becomes so vanity-based. But that's Agreed. what the job is. Like, I know that. I, I audition kids all the time. And I... Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Like you're not, I'm trying not to do that. And, and you know, it's different. It's high school. So there's a lot more flexibility, but when you're, Truly. um, when they're casting a Broadway show, like they wanted to look a certain way, you know? Right. And so, yeah. I think um, that I'm, and I'm going to sound like I have it all together, but I don't <laughs> because I struggle with this all the time. It's this interesting and really tiring tug of war with who are you for real and it's like acting being in theater being a singer being a dancer is that what you do or is that who you are and it's interesting because for me my gift and my talents are two different things what I do is not necessarily my purpose to me And so what I mean by that is I think that's the reason why a lot of artists are hit so hard right now, because with the pandemic, we're not allowed to do what makes us feel worthy. We're not allowed to do what makes us feel like we have a purpose because we're literally not allowed to be artistic and be creative in the way that we're used to. And so I definitely think that's a reason why it feels like the entertainment industry has has been hit so hard and everything, because it's like it's been a very traumatic wake up call. Mm-hmm. because we cannot allow our looks, we can't allow our talents, our, you know, the, how high we can sing, how great we can act, how great our grand bop mas are when we're dancing. Mm-hmm. We can't allow that to make us feel valid for being here. Mm-hmm. And we can't allow that to be the only things that we consider worthy mm-hmm. of peace, right. basically, and happiness, you know? Right. And even with the looks thing, I had a girl I was teaching. I went back to my high school to teach some theater classes to some students. And I had a girl ask me about looks. And I don't really know if I answered in the proper way back then. I don't know if I was able to communicate it. But I feel like there's two different lanes. I feel like there's the lane of I'm always stressing to people to trust your gift. And that's literally I'm I've become an official teaching artist this year. And that's literally my slogan. And that's my mantra is to trust your gift. Mm -hmm. And I believe that your gift will make room for you. And I believe that God will make room for you. And I don't believe that God will withhold any good thing from you. And so when it comes to looks, I feel like there are two lanes. There's one lane where you can assimilate and you can dye your hair You can go to the gym, you can put on fake eyelashes, you can wear a tight tank top, wear baby oil, I don't know. You can do all those things Mm -hmm. to make you look like what you feel you're supposed to look like. And I feel like as long as you love yourself, and I feel like as long as you have that confidence within yourself, I think that that's okay. Yeah. But there's also another lane where if you want to say F the standards, F society, F Mm -hmm. the industry, I'm going to create my own lane and I'm going to be who I am authentically and as beautiful as I naturally am. I think that's a great lane as well. Right. But regardless of what lane you choose, I think that you have to trust your gift. Right. And I think that you have to know that what is for you is for you. Mm -hmm. So if you choose to be 
Marissa Jarrett Winoker, who won the Tony Award for Tracy Turnblad and Hairspray. If you choose to continue to be whatever it is you look like, just know that some days are probably going to be harder than others, but what is meant for you is meant for you. Mm-hmm. And then you can also take the other lane, the lane that I've taken, where because if I didn't go to the gym, I would look like a bag of sticks. Mm-hmm. I, would, <laughs> I would look like a bag of tree branches. I have trained myself to look a certain way, and that in turn has made me even more confident. But I've realized that that's just the outer shell. Mm-hmm. And it's really my talents and my gifts that make room for me and not right. necessarily my look. I think that's the thing is because you know that it's the people that don't know that and they do it for other people, but you're not doing yes. it for other people. You're doing it for yourself. And exactly. And it's, it's a fine line, but it is. What advice do you have for, I mean, I'm going to throw this out to the guys cause I don't know. I don't know how large my male audience is but I am raising two boys and Mm -hmm. there's not a single girl in this house, but me. And, Mm -hmm. and one of them, poor you, (laughs) (laughs) my, one of them is a, he takes ballet and he's a ballet dancer and he already at the age of 10. I mean, he started when he was, I don't know, seven, six, but Mm -hmm. The entire time he's already gotten, you know, made fun of and ridiculed mm-hmm. for being a ballet dancer. So right. I'm going to send this out to the guys. What advice do you have for guys who are in the arts, in the like going into college or even in high school who are pursuing this and maybe feel alone or are having a hard time? Because I don't think I ever thought about what it's like to be a male. There is a lot of pressure put on males a lot. to carry shows. And I've, I mean, honestly, like, I've just never thought about that. And so now mm-hmm. I'm thinking about it. <laughs> and so, it's a lot. It's, first of all, to all the young boys or men who are going through it, you are absolutely not alone. You can't get more outside of the box than me. I'm this little black boy growing up on West 38th Street in the hood in Indianapolis, Indiana. And I'm running around doing ballet and listening to Barbara Streisand at the age of eight. Like, who is this child? Where did he come from? I've always, I've always been different. I've always been unique. And I think that what will be important for you as a mom to pass down to your son and for all the guys out there who are going through it is to remember the things that make you different are your superpower and the things that make you different make you even more great and even more worthy of love and even more worthy for the lane that you choose to go into and the artistic expression that you choose to go into because you've had to go through more. And I always think to myself, you know, I was bullied a lot when I was younger. I was bullied very heavily. I would say from maybe second grade in elementary school to about my junior year of high school. Bullied for being too feminine, bullied for singing, bullied for not being masculine enough, bullied for just anything, bullied for my hair, bullied for anything you can think of. And it was difficult because I felt like there was never anybody who I saw who 
had the same experience as me. But what I realized was I'm writing the manual just by being me and just by being me unapologetically. I'm so grateful for the time we're in now because I feel like younger kids are more open-minded now than they were when I was younger, but it's still hard. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's very important to continue to let young boys experiment and let them have artistic expression. I think it's great that you even have a young boy in ballet. That just makes my heart smile just hearing it. And just to let him know that it's difficult and people are going to think and say what they want. But at the end of the day, what people think does not matter right. at the end of the day. Right. And that is so cliche. And I can't even believe I just said that because when you're young, you don't want to hear that at all because <laughs> it feels like it does matter. It truly feels like it matters. Right. But I don't know. It's just what if I had a son right now who was going through what I went through when I was younger, I would feel so blessed that he has me to look up to because I went through it. Mm -hmm. So I feel like when you have a young son who's in ballet or a young son who wants to tap dance or a young son who maybe acts a little more feminine than you're used to in your family or whatever, mm -hmm. I think it's important to show him representation mm -hmm. of men who are thriving. Right. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So if you have a young boy who is doing ballet, show him James Whiteside mm -hmm. and show him, you know, Derek Huff, you know, who has this gorgeous girlfriend and who's on Dancing with the Stars and he's mm -hmm. won a million times and he's on TikTok and he's cool and he does shows with Jennifer Lopez. I think that's important to show them those images. But um, to all the boys who are going through it and who are experiencing bullying or their family doesn't understand them, just know that it gets better. Yeah. It definitely gets better and don't give up. Definitely don't give up because your gift is so much more powerful. It's so much bigger than you think. Right. Your your gift is so, it's so important and it's so much bigger than you think and God is truly going to use that. Right. And what you're going through right now is only a test. It's only a test. I think that you are super inspirational and I think you're going to inspire a lot of people who are going to be listening to this. Thank you. Um, and I just want to thank you so much for being, I'm so happy I met you. <laughs> I know this was great. Never in a million years did I think I would be talking to you. And, you know, even after our phone call the other day, it wasn't mm -hmm. like I was thinking about Jude, my son. I, I wasn't thinking about that, but I'm just so inspired. Like I am literally going to play this the end for him so that he can hear it. Oh, and that makes me so happy. Honestly, he's probably like gonna be like, I'm fine, you know. Which is natural. He's ten, so it's not yeah. he can handle himself, but yeah, I mean he's been told all those things. And so I think that you are a huge inspiration. And where can people find you? I know you're on social media. What are all yeah. your things? So you can find me on Instagram at at Antonio underscore King 32. Okay. That's A-N-T-O-N-I-O underscore, underscore, excuse me, K-I-N-G 32. And you can also find me at www.AntonioKing32.Weebly.com. -E -E okay, awesome. Yeah, buddy. 
So, and I will list those in the show notes as well so that you guys can, if you didn't catch any of that, you can find him. But anyway, Mm -hmm. thank you so much. No, thank you. Thank you so much.